In this episode, we have a captivating chat with Mallory Brown, impact storyteller and founder of Walk a Mile, a marathon journey to walk 26 miles in the shoes of females making an impact around the globe. Welcome, welcome. You're listening to The Science of Social Impact, a podcast from Crate of Good. We are on a mission to educate and inspire you to make social impact part of your daily life. Thanks for joining. Let's make an impact right now. So life's this crazy journey that we could never script. And today we are going to learn how a woman from Farmington Hills, Michigan, finds herself smuggled into a Syrian refugee camp as she attempts to change the world. Today, we're talking with impact storyteller and humanitarian filmmaker and activist, Mallory Brown. Mallory, what's up? <laughs> hello, hello. Um, yes, Syrian refugee camp. Man, you just dive right in. Yeah, well, we're going to get to that. Uh, before we do, we got to start with uh, what makes you you. Tell me, tell us, what do you believe? What's a core principle that you know to be true after your life's incredible work so far? Uh, well, there's just definitely one that keeps me centered and focused all the time. And I believe, I know to be true that people are all the same everywhere. And it is reinforced every day of my life. Um, this morning, I had another profound moment. I, I was on a conference call with people in Uganda and um, the office debate going on in the background, I was just cracking up because it's exactly the same as just the little details that people are complaining about and Wi-Fi is not working and all, you know, and um, people are the same everywhere. Awesome. We're going to continue to unpack that belief statement that people are all, people are all the same everywhere uh, throughout this chat. So uh, first, we're going to ask the question, like, how did we get here? And first, let's frame where here is. So where are we talking to you from today? Uh, like, where exactly are you in the world? Uh, give us all those details so we can know where, where you are today here. Okay. Well, today I am in my home. I live in Birmingham, Michigan. Uh, it's also my office. I work from home running my crazy campaigns around the world. And uh, when I'm not here, I'm traveling to remote locations around the world to, uh, to film in developing countries. Awesome. And so this didn't happen overnight. So like, Go ahead and answer this question however you'd like. Give us the Cliff Notes version of how the heck did we get here today uh, in Birmingham, Michigan? Well, so I decided when I was 24 years old that I wanted to be one of those, throw it all into my passion and see if I could make a career out of what I loved. And uh, so I started as a social entrepreneur and um, my my passion is really helping people that live in developing countries. And so I started a, uh, a long career of trying to work as an activist and 
communicate the real needs of people on the ground um, and engage people back at home to interact with them. And so I started a, I started my first company and then I started um, my second company, which is what I run now called Travel Mail. And I run charity campaigns around the world. Um, and I work as a, a filmmaker to showcase, um, you know, these are the real lives of people in need and this is how we can help. Awesome. Was there a moment for you or an experience that kickstarted you know, like you said, that decision to start to dedicate your what you did to social entrepreneurship and social impact? There was a moment, yeah. So when I, um, I went to a liberal arts college in Michigan, a small school called Albion College. And Shout out to all the Albion grads listening to yeah, this. Yeah, go Brits. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I graduated, I took a backpacking trip to Southeast Asia. And um it was just for fun. I went with a girlfriend. We wanted to go ride an elephant. Uh, that was before I knew that that's a very bad thing to do. But um, I, I got hurt on the second day of the trip right away. I was in a bicycle accident and I had my chin was cut open and I had all these stitches put in. My whole body was bruised and I had... Um, open cuts all over my body. And so it was pretty bad. It's probably the most hurt I've ever been. And it snapped me out of vacation mode and into real life. And I went into health clinics and I started seeing other people, local people that were in need. And, um, you know, I really just started to look at my, my trip to Bali and to Thailand as as more of an eye-opening experience than this vacation that I thought it would be. And that was my first trip to the developing world. And it changed my whole view on life and on the world and how I fit into it and how I connect with people. And that was the, the moment that changed everything. The course of my career has has shifted and turned with everything I learn and how I grow as a person and, um, you know, trying to be more effective in my job. And that's just a huge long journey. Mm -hmm. But that first trip was the, that was the spark. Wow. That is a wild story. It started with a bike accident. So you fall, fall off this bike, I don't know, hit a, hit a hole in the road or something like that. And you have to get some somewhat serious like treatment at the local hospital there. And that's where you kind of saw some things. Yeah. And it was um, really, so I was moving around around the island and I had a local man who would walk with me every day to, to walk to clinics. Clinics. They, um, I got five stitches in my chin and I had to go to a clinic every other day to make sure they're not infected. Like when you hear that from a doctor, it's like, oh my gosh, what is happening right now? This is my face. You know, it's not like on my knee or something. It's like my chin. Um, and so, yeah, I started taking these walks with this, this local man who would take me to all the different clinics I needed to go to. And I, I started to learn about his life and, you know, you'd show up at these clinics and just see how basic their medical care was. And, um, you know, I went to one clinic where they were treating animals and humans in the same room. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> Take me, you know, I want to go to a different one. But it was, 
it was, you know, that's a reality for people that live there. That's their, their healthcare. And so, um, so yeah, it really just, you know, it changed my perspective and also in a way that, you know, I survived, I was fine. I think my, my family, my friends were freaking out at home, but I, I guess I started to live like a local, you know, and I didn't feel in danger or like I needed to rush home or that I, I couldn't survive this. You know, I was just kind of living like them for a little bit. Awesome. There's going to be a couple, a couple points along this conversation where we're in story mode, a couple points where we're going to have a perspective spike. Um, and then a couple where we're going to have like, uh, an advice moment for someone listening to this who says, okay, I, I want to go serve somewhere on a trip like the one that Mallory's talking about. Can you first tell us maybe what country they should look into? Second, tell us if there's an organization you recommend to go search out and serve for. And then thirdly, uh, if they were to get in a bike accident or hurt on a trip like this, which could be a barrier for some people who are wanting to go on it, uh, what they should feel better about or do if that were to happen. Yeah, sure. Um, there's tons of advice I can give. I've <laughs> been all over the world. Um, yeah, as we, as we talked today, I'm 33 years old and I've been to 51 countries. So oh, it's, wow. I've have quite the, uh, quite the, the bucket of stories to pull from. Unreal. So where is like, if someone said, Hey, I want to serve. What what's a country they should look into to as a starting spot to serve in? As someone who's been to fifty one, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, I'd kind of flip that question back on them and say, where do they have an interest in going? Um, because when you go on a trip or some sort of volunteer trip you gain a lot more than just the work you're doing on the ground. And so um, you'll see a culture and people and language and food and scenery. And um, you know, that, that that's the whole experience. So, um, you know, many people start off in Central America. It's very close. Uh, Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua, those are all, very any easy places to get to the there's not huge jet lag uh, same time zone the flight's fairly simple um spanish is the local language which most people can get by on so those are really great starting points um but you know my starting point was southeast asia and i went to the opposite side of the world because i wanted something totally different and i wanted a language i couldn't understand and uh to not be able to, you know, I was on the opposite time zone. So when my family and friends at home are sleeping, I'm awake mm -hmm. and I wanted to be totally removed. And so that's, you know, that's your other end of the spectrum. So I guess it's your comfort zone and how, how comfortable you are being so removed. But um, Southeast Asia is my favorite part of the world. Cambodia had a phenomenal trip in Cambodia, uh, Thailand, those are just very welcoming for tourists and very, very eye-opening. They're Buddhist countries. Their languages and characters, um, just, just a total different world over there. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, but, um, you know, there's tons of organizations that do, that do service trips. My first trip wasn't actually a service trip. I just went on a tour with a company called Intrepid, which I always recommend to people. It was a group of 12 people in their 20s from all around the world. And that's a great experience, too, because you meet your fellow travelers who give you... Intrepid, I-N-T-E-N-T? I-N. I-N-T-R-E-P-I-D. Intrepid, yes. Cool. So, so yeah, but there's tons and and a lot of kids in school, they'll have spring break service trips. A lot of those go to Honduras or Haiti or, um, you know, places that are close to get to the flights, not too long. Mm-hmm. And that's a great way to, to serve because you're with your friends, your peers, and you can come home and go back to school and share those memories with the person you're with. Uh, so yeah, I would just look at, um, you know, what kind of culture you're interested in seeing and what kind of opportunities are easy to sign up for. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. And then your, your company, they provide all sorts of links for insurance and travel insurance, which I had and, um, safety precautions and any vaccines you need and all of that. It's, it's not, it's nothing crazy. It's much less than people imagine it will be. So, uh, that should not deter you at all. For sure. Cool. So, that was a kickstart of many experiences for you that you continue to just have uh, on your journey to to help make the world better. Uh, tell me about uh, your next kind of experience or story that really started to shape who you are today. Right. Well, so um, now my my work has very much narrowed into my specialty, which is I make short documentary films about charities around the world, and then I run crowdfunding campaigns to try to raise money to help them. And after nine years of working as a humanitarian activist, I know that's my sweet spot. That's where I shine. And so uh, that sort of discovery actually happened by chance. Um, The first fundraiser I ever ran was in January of 2015, so a little over four years ago. And I was in Haiti for a separate project. And throughout my time in Haiti, I came across this family. And it was a single mom. She had five kids. And her oldest son had been separated from the family um, in this very traumatic, horrible way. So if you can remember back to 2010, there was a horrible earthquake in Haiti. It's um, hit the capital city and just destroyed the country. And when that happened, this family, um, they were living in Port-au-Prince, the capital city, and the oldest son wasn't home. And so he was, he was, I don't know, off school or with friends or somewhere. And so his mom gathered her other children and everyone was evacuated out of the city and moved outside to these sort of refugee camps. They called them displaced persons camps. And he wasn't there and he didn't move with them. And so um, 
you know, they're a very poor family. They don't have telephones. They didn't have um, really much money, no way to keep in touch. And so the oldest son, his name was Jackie. He started living on the streets and actually fell into a situation of childhood slavery, which exists in Haiti. And um, it's this horrifying story that um, the nonprofit I was working with, they had been working with this family to try to help them. So flash forward five years and Jackie, the oldest son, had escaped from this childhood slavery situation that he was living in. Uh, He was taken into a local home and kept as a servant. So basically like a real life Cinderella. Mm. And he escaped from that family and found out which camp his mom and siblings had been moved to and made his way to that displaced person's camp. They were still living there five years later. And there's hundreds of thousands of people. And he walked tent to tent until he found them and reunited with them. So insane story. I met this family a couple months after that reunification. And so Jackie was home with his mom and his other siblings, but they had nothing. I mean, they're in this, in this refugee camp and there's no work. There's no way to earn an income. There was just horrible sanitation issues. They're um, exposed to all the elements. There's just heat shining like every day cooking them. And they're in this tiny little makeshift tent. And so I decided I couldn't, I just couldn't walk away from them. There was something so strong. And so I decided to run a one day long fundraiser when I was on the ground in Haiti and I would try to raise enough money to move this family back into their old neighborhood, which was now rebuilt and get them into a home so they could restart their life. And uh, I thought if I could pay a year of rent for this family, it would make such a huge difference. And so I published a fundraiser online, a one day long fundraiser, emailed it out to all my friends and family, showing them uh, Jackie and his mom, Chantal, and, and the other siblings. And we made a video about it. And I raised $10,000 in one day online. And I literally like drove back to the, to the, the displaced persons camp the next day and like pack up your stuff. We're moving. So we moved, we moved the family. We loaded them all into uh, a truck and all of their, everything they had. And I found an apartment. We rented it for a year, paid for utilities. We enrolled the kids into their school. um, So they could finally go back to school after five years of having no school and um, actually raised so much money, I was able to give the mom seed money to start her own business. And, and it changed their life. I mean, $10,000 was life-changing to this family. And so um, that moment, I was like, wow, this actually works. You know, people really give when I can communicate so specifically the need. And we can really do some good. So, um, since then I've been running fundraisers for all sorts of causes all around the world, trying to directly help people. Unreal story. What country was that in? That was in Haiti. 
in Haiti. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's incredible. And that was in Haiti. And like we said, you've been to 51 countries. So now take me from this awesome experience in Haiti, your first online one day fundraiser, super big success. Uh, take me from there to how we ended up over in Syria. So yeah, Syria was um, was sort of the next iteration of fundraisers because I started realizing how successful these would be, and that I could I could sort of pinpoint a an interesting topic of conversation and then go there and try to help. So um, when the the crisis in Syria was sort of at the peak of our news. Um, I decided to actually go, I went to Greece to a Syrian refugee camp and show people what life was really like. You know, we see all these news articles and you read headlines and, um, and that's great. It's awareness, but it, you know, what is it really like on a day-to-day basis? And when, what does these camps look like and what are the people sound like? And, what does it smell like and what are they eating and where they go to the bathroom and where are they going to go from there? You know, like the details of life. So I went to Greece, uh, to Northern Greece, Thessaloniki and, um, stationed myself right outside of a refugee camp called Basilica. And this campaign just shook my core because I normally work in poverty where it's a, a sort of uh, life that someone's born into and they, you know, they're struggling and they have a lot of needs, but this is the status of their community. Whereas the Syrian refugee crisis were normal people who were forced to leave their country. And when your country abandons you, no one has to claim you. And I didn't realize this. I'd never really thought about it. But if all of a sudden the United States said to us, meh, you're not valid anymore. We're not claiming you. You're not an American citizen. We wouldn't have, I mean, we would have nowhere to go. And we would have, nobody would need to take us in. Canada wouldn't have to take us in. Mexico wouldn't have to take us in. You can just exist without a country and a nationality. And so these refugees, which were forced to leave Syria because there's actual, you know, bombs exploding over their heads, no one claims them. And so they live in this no man's land. And it's, um, it was insane. Totally functioning doctors and lawyers and teachers and educated people are, are, are just in limbo. And so, um, so anyway, I stationed myself outside of this refugee camp and the refugee camp was in an old chemical factory, which is probably just pumping toxins into all of these everything, you know, all the air they're breathing and the floor underneath them. And it was this vacant piece of property that nobody wanted anymore. And so that's where they decided to set up the refugee camp. And 
um, foreigners weren't allowed inside the refugee camp. So I was um, legally in Greece. I was a you know visitor of, in Greece, but I couldn't go into the refugee camp. So we started meeting with all of these kids outside, just right outside of the barbed wire that separated the camp from us. And um, one family actually smuggled us in because they wanted us to see, I wanted to see what was it really like in there. Why do they not let foreigners in to the camp? Um, I think a multitude of reasons. I mean, one, the they probably don't want a liability because there's no um, – you know, there's no, like, no organization that's funding any of this. There's no, and it's a, it's a very challenging living environment. And so if I were to go in and get hurt, they don't want the mm-hmm. liability of an American, uh, you know, of, of an American visitor being injured on this, on this land. And is that um, the government of Greece that's funding that refugee camp? Yes, the government of Greece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think also just, you know, this is supposed to be a, a, this is nothing that anyone's proud of. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think they want to, this is not a tourist attraction. You know, mm-hmm. they don't want people to see it, to take photographs, to spread um, the wrong image of it. And they don't have any, you know, it's just a control factor. For sure. So, um, so yeah, so, but I went in and met with these families and. Before we talk about what happened in, tell, like mm-hmm. who, whose idea saying you're, you're casually saying I was smuggled into a Syrian refugee camp. <laughs> someone who's like, that's not so casual. Like who hatches this idea and how do we, how do we get you in to this camp? Right. So um, I was stationed outside of the camp and we were trying to raise funds for a school to be built right. Uh, well, it was actually built to, but to, to, to like give them all of the supplies they needed right outside of the camp. And so um, I could freely go in and out of this, this school per se, because it was not uh, technically the the refugee camp. And so every day I would go and meet with kids that were walking over because they wanted to go to classes. And I became friends with a bunch of these little kids, these little, um, little six-year-old Syrian kids. And so I really bonded with two sisters and they would come running every day to see us. And, um, I told them I wanted to be able to show what their what their home looked like and what their tent looked like and who was their mom and what did they eat every day. And so um, because we weren't allowed in, I gave the oldest sister my GoPro so she could walk through the camp and kind of film her own little tent and come back out and give me the footage. And so this was my first solution to the problem of us not being able to enter. Mm -hmm. And um, she took the GoPro in and came out crying because an older kid had stolen it from her. (laughs) And so, um, you know, partially that's just kids being kids. Partially it's that you're 
working with a group of very traumatized people that have had everything taken from them and um, they have no resources, they have no money, they have um, no ability to shop. So a GoPro's a high commodity item. Sure, yeah. And so, um, so yeah, so after that uh, failure with the GoPro, we decided to, the girls were just like, no, no, we'll bring you in. And so they knew that there was a break in the barbed wire around back. And so you hear that idea. Are you, are you right away? Like, yeah, let's go. Or are you right away? Like, Ooh, you're going to, we're going to do what? I was all in. Okay. I, uh, I love that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah. My group was, we had a couple of people in the group that were a little nervous, um, with the legality of that and getting in trouble and um you know the last thing you want to do is be imprisoned in a foreign country so I understand those sort of hesitations but for me um I see I just I, I I trust in people so much that I knew I would be okay I knew that the the Syrians in the camp would back me on this and they wouldn't allow something bad to happen. So, so we went um, and went to these two sisters' little tent, and I got to meet their mom and their dad. And um, it was so fun because there's guards that walk. So inside the the camp, it's rows of tents. You know, think of army, mm-hmm. like an old army scene. You know, and. Um, each tent is for a different family. And so it could be a mom, a dad, an aunt, seven cousins and four kids and everyone's in a tent. You know, these are whole communities that had to flee. So you don't have space or personal space. Um, You want to save as many people as you can. And so we went into this tent and, um, cause a little scene because we were these white people in the refugee camp and uh some of the low you know the teenage boys that were in there sort of stood guard and because the government guards the greek government they would walk up and down the aisles monitoring the refugee camp and so they would keep track of where the guards were and then when they were walking by the tent, we were inside, tell everyone to be really quiet. No So that way. we wouldn't hear English. <laughs> yeah. It was actually kind of crazy. When I say this back, I'm like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so they, you know, they hit our shoes. They were very thorough to make sure that, you know, we were not detected. And then we spent maybe an hour in, inside that tent. And then, um, when it was coast was clear, we got smuggled out through the barbed wire. Through the barbed wire, back to somewhere else that's not inside the camp. <laughs> right, back to anywhere else that I'm supposed to be. So, is that a, a conversation in English with the Syrian refugees during that hour you spent in the tent? Yeah. Um, so, most of the time when I'm working on the ground, people don't speak English, but often kids will speak English. Um, You know, the young generation is learning English, so they translate. And so I would say Helena was the young six-year-old girl. 
I would say, you know, how long have you been in the tent? And then she would translate that to, um, I mean, she could probably answer that, but, you know, translated it. And so her mom could answer questions and um, they wanted to, you know, they always wanted to, to prepare food for you. And so they had an apple and some tea. And so we made tea together in the tent and cut up the apple into slices and, um, and shared that and just asked questions. And you gain a lot of knowledge just from, from being there, just from sitting in the room and understanding and the interactions between people. It's like when you're watching a movie on mute, you know, you can still tell what's happening. And so Mm -hmm. I can see the relationship between the mom. I can tell whose siblings I can see, you know, where's the tension, what's the need, who's, um, who's doing what. And, uh, the father of that family was a wonderful man. He was, um, he was very happy to have us, to have us visit. And, uh, you know, a lot of women in the camp, they deal with a lot of depression because their families have just lost everything and they feel so, um, just lost and bad for their kids. And so, uh, the men tend to step up a lot and get, go into survival mode. And that's what that dad did. So he was always fixing the tent and building things and finding water and fetching water and doing whatever he could to make sure that people were making it through. Wow. So successful fundraiser in Syria? For the oh, so successful. We raised um, almost $48,000 wow. to help outfit this school with everything these Syrian kids needed. So cool. Congrats on that. So you leave Syria um, and now bring me up to where we are starting to hatch the idea for your current endeavor, Walk a Mile. Yes. So I um, decided a year and a half ago that, you know, if I could pick one word that really describes my work, it's empathy. And I am so empathetic towards other people. I, I can't not feel for what they're feeling. And, um, so when I think of empathy, I think of the quote, don't judge someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. And that's really what I've been doing my whole career, you know, is trying to walk in someone else's shoes for a moment in time and elicit some empathy for them and, and then turn it into action and create real financial support. So I took that quote, don't judge someone until you walk a mile in their shoes. And I thought I can turn this into something. And so I created Walk a Mile, which is a documentary series. And in every series, I step into the shoes of an impoverished woman somewhere in the world who's trying to pull her family out of poverty. And every mile is a different episode. And so um, I decided to do a full marathon of this, 26 different episodes, 26 different women, 26 different cultures, 26 different approaches to pulling your family out of poverty. 
and every single woman is supported by a local charity. So uh, a local charity that's giving small business loans or teaching training or helping this woman be successful in business or manage her finances. And so there'd be 26 charities that benefit from this documentary series. So I started Walk a Mile um, a year and a half ago and decided I would try to create these 26 storylines and publish them online with fundraisers and try to raise some awareness. And so far I have four of them that are live for people to watch and engage with and donate online. And um, I have 11 of them that are filmed. So 11 different episodes that are, have been, have been filmed and are, are in the process of going through. And um, the journey is incredible. It's the best work I've ever done. And it's, really showing me such a wide spectrum. I'm learning so much about this, the struggles of women and the work of these great nonprofits. And um, we're raising a ton of support for them. Where does someone find the ones that are already released and out there? So the easiest way is to go to my website, which is travelmal.com. So it's just Mallory shortened. <laughs> um, so travel now, you can watch them all. You can also go to YouTube and search. Um, my YouTube channel is travel now and all of the walk a mile episodes are, are there. They're each five minutes long and you can go step in the shoes of a woman in need and figure out how you can help her. Sweet. Can we donate from the site or from YouTube or is there another site we're going to, to make that donation? Uh, so when you watch the video, there's a donation link. So um, you can, the link's on my site, it's on YouTube also, but it takes you to CrowdRise, which is the crowdfunding platform where the donations are collected. Sweet. And you've got four released, 11 filmed. Are those 11 filmed, including the four that are released, or is that 11 additional? Uh, including them. So we've got 15 left 15 miles 15 women 15 countries 15 stories left yep 15 more to go and are those planned out some planned out none planned out uh it's it's a work in progress so um yeah i i find um funding to produce all of these and so when i it's basically when i find funding then i produce the next few miles and kind of moves down this conveyor belt of um, fund the project, travel, film, come home and edit, publish online, and then raise the money for the charity. And then we do it for the next and the next and the next. So it's, uh, you know, the whole project in itself, I think will take me five years to film, edit and publish all 26 miles. What kind of person or organization is typically funding these? So, um, so far, I'm thrilled that all the first 11 miles that have been filmed are funded by individuals. So they are... No way. I thought for sure you were going to tell me organization. No. I welcome it. Um, Companies to come in and fund, but no, they're they're organizations... um, often with family foundations or, 
you know, just very successful CEOs or um, people that want to give back in a large way. And they believe that my method of fundraising and, and humanitarian work is very effective. So they see, you know, funding one of my miles. It will actually, in the end, after I've published the crowdfunding campaign, it yields more money for the charities because collectively, you know, my viewership will donate more, Mm. more money. So yeah, it's been a, it's allowed me to meet some incredibly generous people, but I'm, I'm still looking for more. So anyone listening, um, but yes, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a spectrum of experiences that I get to have. Yeah. You could say that would be one way to put it quite a spectrum of experiences. That's, uh, that's probably putting it lightly. You've had so many amazing ones. So maybe one question that I have for you right now would be, um, you've had all these amazing experiences. You've made some awesome things happen, but I would bet that you haven't always known exactly what you were doing when you started something. You just maybe knew the destination and had no idea the route to get there. Can you unpack real quick a time when you had absolutely no idea what you were doing you can just be real in love with us hey when i set out to do this thing i had no idea what was going on and then maybe just tell us your first three steps you took after you realized yep no clue uh yeah well i'd say that's you know a large part of my (laughs) my (laughs) life um and not that i'm you know not that i'm an incompetent person but of course of course but most of what i'm doing is uncharted territory you know i've I've yet to meet another person with the same job that I have. Mm -hmm. So I don't know anyone else that produces their own short documentary films and runs on the ground fundraisers. So I'm blazing trails every day and um, walk a mile as a project itself is the first project that I've ever solely taken on as my own. I have no boss. I have no main sponsor. There's no um, corporate funding. I don't have any guidelines. I have no, uh, there's, there's no one to report to because it's my own creation. And it, it was very challenging for me to activate and decide to start with such little framework. So my previous, all of my previous work, I'd always had some sort of guiding light, some sort of um, mentor or sponsor or funder or someone who had a say. And when I started Walk a Mile, I really thought, you know, this is me going out on my own. It would be the equivalent of a like a film director directing other people's movies. And then all of a sudden they say, I'm going to make my own movie Mm -hmm. from scratch. Or if you work for for a company and you're an engineer and you build things for a company, then going home and saying, okay, I'm going to build something in my basement from scratch and Mm -hmm. try to patent it. You know, so this is me going out as a total independent. And that's very nerve like nerve-wracking and I 
realized that if I looked at it as a marathon, as 26 miles, as a round the world trip, as a five year long project, I would get so overwhelmed with all that there was to do. And every time I still get overwhelmed, but when I break it down into the smallest chunks, I make progress. So my first thing was, okay, get mile one funded. Pick where mile one is going to be, make mile one happen. And then that's even a huge goal, you know? So it's Mm -hmm. reach out to three people today with the idea of mile one and get their feedback. And, you know, select the charity. Just one thing that I can accomplish to move the project forward. And if you can do, if you can move the needle a little bit every day, eventually it starts to come together. And then now that I'm 11 miles in, there's a rhythm. You know, I know how to fund the mile. I know how long I need to plan it. I know which type of organizations I like to work with. I know the right questions to ask, you know, and, and it mm-hmm. sort of starts to become, I'm, I'm much better at it because I'm, I'm much more competent. But um, yeah, I, you know, I read a magazine article when I was young, I mean, I was probably in college and it was, it was written not necessarily to applying to me, but it was about uh, people that were trying to, people that are always nervous to ask for a raise at work. And they are just so nervous to go into their boss's office and sit down and say, I do great work. And I, want to raise. And people will work for three years at the same pay grade until they gather the courage to go ask for the raise. And then when their boss says yes, they're like, oh my God, I should have done this three years ago. Think of how much more money I could have made, you know? And so that stuck with me so, it resonated with me so much that just the fear of asking holds you back. And The worst thing that's going to happen is you walk into your boss's office and say, I work really hard. I'm your best employee. I want to raise. And they say no. And you go back to life as is. Right. And so I have just always tried to approach my work as what if I had no fear in this situation? What would I do? Because it's my own fear that is probably holding me back. And when I look back on my life, on the 51 countries I've been to, on the hundreds of thousands of dollars I've raised for charity, even in the past year and a half, I've been to 11 different countries for Walk a Mile. I Can you say I'm, that again? In the past <laughs> year and a half? In the past year and a half, I've been to 11 different countries for Walk months. a Mile. 18 months, 18 months, 11 11 countries. countries. Just wanted to make sure I got that right. (laughs) Yeah. And I am shocked at how much I accomplish. I, because when my day to day, I don't, I don't feel like I'm working myself to death or I'm jumping off the cliffs every day or, but when I look back, I see I did so much and I, save so much time by not operating from a fear-based place. 
I save hours and hours of hesitation and overthinking and not asking when I need to ask. And I, I just go for it. And so, um, you know, when I talk to entrepreneurs all the time, people can, you can think your idea to death, but you, you just got to act. And so, um, it's led me to create amazing things and beautiful change and help so many people. I mean, the, the tech, you know, the logistics of what I do is impressive. The, the way it's structured is impressive, but the people that I am helping, that is the most impressive. And it's, it's truly changing people's lives because I can work effectively. I can help so many people in need. And, um, you know, and that's just amazing. That's just miraculous. Mm -hmm. Wow. So after some of the amazing stories you've shared today, um, we know a little bit more about you. What's, uh, we're going to kind of start to wrap this up here on a personal note. What's, what would we be surprised to know about you right now? Hmm. Well, I feel like my life is really an open book. I, um, you know, when you watch my videos, you'll, you'll feel like, hopefully (laughs) you feel like you know me and you can get a sense of who I am. I have a lot of people that come up to me, um, and they like give me a big hug and start talking to me because they feel like they know me because they've watched me online, but I have no idea who this person (laughs) is, you know? (laughs) So, um, so I try to really be authentic and, and true to myself. Um, but the surprising thing probably is that I'm just actually writing a whole blog post about this, but, um, I have always had a very, uh, I've been very self-conscious about my voice and the sound of my voice. And, uh, it stemmed from when I was a little girl and it's, it's a unique pitch. I know that it sounds, it's very identifiable. It's, that's me talking. There's not a lot of people that have the, the tone of voice that I have. I've told I have a very strong Midwest accent, but, um, <laughs> but it's, um, you know, it's a, it's amazing to me that my voice, which is something that I have been self-conscious about my whole life, it has turned into now that I'm a voice for people that are living in poverty. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I speak for them and I share their stories um, for them. And it's, it's just amazing how that flipped on me in mm. my life and I didn't intend poetic. it to be, but it, wow. it did. Yeah. And so, um, I think people would be very surprised to know that I have that sort of, um, you know, I, I I'm a little self-conscious about my voice. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. 
don't analyze it too much. Nah. Please don't turn this into a funny little, <laughs> no, a little no. rap video with my, <laughs> with my voice. <laughs> no, it was poetic. It was poetic. Um, how about, uh, something you're scared of? What is so after all this, what scares you today? Um, I think really I'm scared of I'm scared of what would happen if I stopped doing what I'm doing. Um, I've set myself up for this beautiful life of adventure and philanthropy and human connection and human spirit. And I travel a ton and I love to travel and um, it's really great right now. But I fear what will happen when I get married and have kids and I, um, you know, I can't move at the pace I'm moving right now. And um, it scares me to, to think that I would lose my um, you know, my, my spirit and my approach to people. Um, I don't, as I say that, I know I will find a way to make it work because it's so a part of who I am, even if my job changes or my, the time commitment that I have changes. Um, I know I won't lose it, but I am fearful of how that looks because it's so it's so much of who I am hmm. it's uh that's like a really interesting part of life that I guess we all navigate at a different time as we uh when we do something and really put our whole heart into it we somehow identify with this and people identify us with it and at a certain point there comes a time where we kind of have to figure out instead of identifying with that, how are we going to now identify with like our legacy for that? And what, what is our legacy and how do we make sure that that legacy stays around long after us and we're in this work? We can't clone ourselves. Otherwise we would, uh, we can only inspire. So second to last question for you here. Um, like what are some real takeaways that someone can do here? And I really want you to use this question and answer as a platform to bridge the gap for someone who hasn't been to 51 countries, for someone who maybe hasn't even left their country, who listens to your story and is inspired and becomes a part of, of your legacy um, to change the world for the better, like help, help them really figure out how they can navigate this. And I know you said empathy was, was one of your core beliefs. So really put yourself in the shoes of someone who is listening to this and saying, Hey, get me there, Malik. How do I get to this feeling that you have where, you know, you found a purpose and are, are just crushing it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's so great. And it's, I'm so glad you brought that up because, um, I realized, you know, I took my I took my life and made it very extreme and not everyone can do that and, or wants to do that. You know, you don't have to go fly to Africa 
to have an impact and you don't have to go raise a million dollars to have an impact. And the, the takeaway that I hope people would gain from watching me and, and engaging with the stories that I'm telling and watching the stories that I'm telling is that the biggest impact that I have is not the dollars that I create. The biggest impact that I have is that I care. I really care what happens to those two girls in the Syrian refugee camp. And I really care about the women that I walk with in these films. And they know that. They feel that so deeply. The best compliment I ever received was from a impoverished woman in Uganda. And she said, you, like meaning me, she said, you have everything that someone would want. You are American. You are educated. You come from, you know, I come from the upper middle class in the U.S. I'm white. I'm eloquent. I have every single opportunity that I, you know, that, that I, I could do whatever I wanted to do with my life. And I choose to identify with people that are poor. And that meant so much to her that I came to see her and I came to tell her story and that I didn't take another opportunity. And for anyone who's ever worked with the homeless, if you've ever volunteered, if you've ever gone to a soup kitchen, when you're at a soup kitchen and you're serving someone, it's not the soup that is the difference you're making. It's not the meal that is going into their stomach. It's the fact that you showed up and that you care enough to do that and to take your time to give to someone else. And the other point I'd really like to drive home is that you have no idea the ripple effect of you being there. You know, I talk to so many people about like that go to their annual volunteer day. And although they kind of like it and they, they have fun and they're really pumped, they get off of work for the day. <laughs> they feel like, what did that really do? And how did that really help? And it actually really helps. The people that I have gone back to visit years later, they have, they proved to me how the smallest interaction with someone makes a humongous difference. Like that family I told you about in Haiti mm -hmm. that I moved into a neighborhood. So I went back two years later to check in on them to see how they were doing. And the oldest son, the one that was in childhood slavery, so the first time I met him, he didn't speak because he was so traumatized by what he'd been through. Understandably, I was like, it's okay. You don't need to talk to me. I don't speak your language. I am this foreign person that walked into your house and told everyone to move. Like, we don't, you know, it's okay. And I didn't even pry him to speak. And I went back two years later and he wrote me a letter 
in English. So he had learned English in two years and he had been saving it for the next time that he saw me. And I'm, I'm like tearing up as I tell you this because I didn't know that I would ever go back to visit this family, but I, I was sent to Haiti for a, a different reason. And I just decided to extend my trip and go pay them a visit. And he gave it to me thanking me for believing in them and not giving up on them. And it meant so much to me, this letter, because it just shows what people really need. You know, they just really need someone to believe in them. And that sort of care, that sort of compassion is what makes a difference in life. You know, even if I had raised no money for that family, the fact that I cared meant something to them. And so I would just tell everyone to not underestimate your heart and your compassion for others and what that stands for and how that motivates them. Because that's really, that's really what I'm trying to, to show every day. Wow. Unreal. Sorry, am I making you cry? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, You're awesome. This is awesome. Um, Usually I I close this out with someone's 30 second message to the world and and you just crushed it. So I'm not even going to go to that question because you just nailed it. Uh, People need someone to believe in them. And uh, there's so much power, especially with things going on in today's world to just care a lot about a lot of things and about a lot of people. And if we all cared a lot, uh, that is really going to make some, some serious change. And you are uh, one of the people that are inspiring us to do that. So I thank you very much for that. I mean, we started this story with a bike accident on a trip. Uh, we went to Syrian refugee camps in Greece, uh, witnessing victims of childhood slavery in Haiti. I honestly, you are a human do good machine. I don't know if you've used that nickname before. You can take that with you. <laughs> well, thank human you. Do good machine. And, um, you're doing so much now, but also for the people that see your work, benefit from your work there, you're leaving a legacy already. And so be rest assured in that, that when the day comes that you have to face that fear at the moment of what will happen when you can't run at the pace you're running, uh, you've inspired probably thousands at that point to run at that pace. And the world itself is probably running faster towards good. And uh, we, uh, we all thank you for that. So guys, this is been an unreal conversation with Mallory Brown, Travel Mal. You can check her out at travelmal.com. Specifically, check out her latest endeavor, Walk a Mile, a global marathon for women's empowerment. She is doing some awesome things every day, and we have a lot to learn from her. So Mallory, thank you so much for sharing everything you did today, uh, and keep up the great work. Thanks. Thanks so much for being with us on this episode of The Science of Social Impact, a podcast from Crate of Good. Let's go out there and make the world a better and brighter place. I'll see you when I'm looking at you.